Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress and exertion you put on your body throughout the day. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, and heart rate variability that can be used as an indicator for how to approach your day. The app has built-in features like Strain Coach, which gives you target exertion goals to work out optimally at your body's recovery level. Whoop automatically detects and categorizes your activity so there's no need to start and stop your workout. You can analyze your heart rate throughout the entirety of your workout and also track your calories burned, max heart rate, and average heart rate. It's the perfect way to train. The app also has a built-in sleep coach, which lets you know how much sleep you should be getting based on your expected activity level for the following day. So you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code VELONEWS at checkout. Go to whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter VELONEWS at the checkout to save 15%. Sleep better. Recover faster and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Whoop today. The life and times of TJ Van Garderen. From his starting days to living in lockdown, we touch base with the American cycling legend to see what's happening. Welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Angus Morton, and as always, I am joined by Bobby Julik. Bobby, how are you doing? Doing great, Gus. Thank you very much. Man, I don't know if uh, we're in a time warp of some sort, but man, it just feels like time is flying by faster than ever. I mean, here we are again on the on the pod. Right, mate. To be honest, I actually thought that we were going to be recording this show tomorrow. And it was only like about, you know, a few hours before the show uh, that I saw in my calendar that it was on. I'm losing track of time completely. Yeah, not easy. Not easy. But, um, you know, this this last week in the cycling world, we actually had some action. You know, what last week it was Keenan Swenson uh, setting the new Everest record at 742. I think I messed that up last, last week. But this week we had Katie Hall. She did it again, climbing... S- 8,848 meters in 10 hours and one minute. Just to put that into perspective, the previous record was 12 hours and 32 minutes. So she crushed it. Absolutely crushed it. Look, I have no desire whatsoever, as I said last week, to to even attempt Everesting, excuse me. Um, but I am all about the Everesting record. And I'm loving seeing professionals who normally just wouldn't have time for this going out and doing crazy stuff like this like when would you ever see an all-out solo 10-hour effort from you know one of the best bike riders in the world you probably never see that again so i'm i'm uh, yeah i'm I'm really appreciating this but when i saw that time of 10 hours and one minute it just had me thinking about could she have gone one minute faster and put it under 10 hours like (laughs) you know (laughs) you're right Was she thinking? Oh, was she at all thinking like that when it was getting you know towards the end? She's in the last couple meters of of her altitude, and <laughs> I wonder if she was thinking that. Dude, we'll have to should, ask. We'll have to get her on the say, pod. I was going to say, you call her up, not me, and uh, and ask if she should, could she could have squeezed one more minute out. But yeah, you're yeah. right. I mean, unbelievable. You know, smash the record by by two hours and thirty one minutes. So hopefully, we'll see a few more attempts at that before uh, before everyone gets back onto uh, you know the regime. Yeah, we also had some some pretty cool kind of tournament style racing on the Be Cool platform called Challenge of Stars. They had a climbers edition, which was won by Giulio Ciccone, mm-hmm. our from from the Tour of Italy, King of the Mountain guy from the Tour of Italy, and he beat Thomas De Ghent in the final round. One thing of note, and I don't know how serious these guys take it, but I mean, if you're going to be on this platform. You're probably giving it a hundred percent, I would think. Might as well. But um, Fromey didn't make it out of the first round. He was eliminated by Warren Bar- Barguil mm. uh, in the first round. So kind of a surprise there. Um, they also had a sprinters edition where Fabio Jakobsen 
beat Filippo Ghana in the final. So that must have been quite uh, an intense uh, round robin sort of thing. You know, you win, you advance, and it was kind of like bracketing, like uh, like the basketball season, what March Madness. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then we had the virtual tour of Gila. This was pretty cool, I must say, because it was three stages. The first day was a team time trial, and then they had two road races. The second one was kind of like a medium mountain day, and then the final day was uh, finished up on on one of the big climbs, the epic climb on on Zwift. But um, the women dominated. Tibco Sun Valley Bank dominated the, the the team time trial. Then they had Lauren Stevens win stage two. Sarah Gigante from Tibco won stage three. And she also took the overall ahead of her teammate, Stevens. So I don't know what Tibco Sun Valley Bank women are doing, but they are absolutely dominating the uh, the online racing over here. Right. And then with the men's, we saw stage one uh, TTT, and it was Saras and the Pros Closet with a winning team there. Stage two uh, was Holden Commune. Again, Saras Pros Closet. He, uh, as a little side note, was the number one rider on Zwift and the 2019 national champion. Uh, stage three was Chris McGlinchey uh, from Vetus Pro Cycling. So at least, you know, uh, someone else got a look in there for that final stage. Bobby, I believe you watched this final stage. I did. I, I did. I watched this live and I really, really enjoyed it. I found a way, a little hack, if you will, to actually follow riders in the race. So I was kind of skipping uh, when they finished up the epic climb. I was just kind of skipping group to group. So I was able to see the watts that these guys were crushing. And it was legit. But when I was watching it, I was under the assumption that Elder Freire from Legion of LA won because he was the first guy to cross the line. But then only afterwards, or actually just this morning, I found out that he was DQ'd for not finishing the previous stage because, (laughs) you know... I don't Love know, that. you know, it's a virtual stage race, so you have to finish one stage to do the next, and uh, evidently he didn't. So rules are rules, I guess, but regardless, it was, it was pretty neat to, to, to see these guys pumping out that sort of wattage for, for that long. And it was Gavin Dempster of the Cyrus Pro's Closet team uh, who, uh, who won uh, the overall there uh, ahead of his teammate Ryan Larson. So, yeah, and, uh, and Bobby, the biggest news of the weekend... Biggest news of the weekend. Hmm. <laughs> Tricky one. Well, Lance's documentary came out last night. Um, Marina Zenovich did this project. It took her, gosh, almost two years to do. Episode one came out last night. So everybody that was watching the the Jordan series probably just clicked on to this one. I watched it. Did you did you get to watch it yet, Gus? Mate, after all of this buildup and, and, and sort of uh, discussion surrounding this this film. I, I missed the start of it, right? And I've just taken, you know, things being on demand for granted and I couldn't manage to to find it uh, on the on demand. So I'd missed the start. So I've, I've you know, I'm going to try and watch it tonight. Um, but look, you know, I'm intrigued to see what it uncovers um, that, that sort of hasn't already been discussed many times. Um, so before I kind of make a comment, I want to I wanna make sure I watch it to... Uh, you know, make sure I don't put my foot in my mouth. But I have heard there's been a lot of rumblings, a lot of discussion around this. So I am intrigued to see what all the fuss is about. Yes, uh, it's it's worth worth a watch. That's for sure. Today's guest speaks for himself. Top five in the TDF on multiple occasions. He's been a member of multiple World Teams Time Trial Championship winning teams, as well as the winner of America's biggest stage races like the Tour of California and the Tour of Colorado. He's only the third American to win the white Best Young Riders jersey at the Tour de France. There's no doubt when TJ Van Garderen is on, he's one of the best stage racers in the world. But there has been a lack of consistency that has plagued his career. With a move to EF education after a long time at BMC, there's still an opportunity for TJ to shine on the biggest sports stage. We caught up with TJ from his place in California to touch on his career that has been and to see where he is hoping to perform when the racing resumes in earnest. Welcome, TJ Van Garderen, to Put Your Socks On. So glad to have you on the show. Where are you now, and how are you holding up these last few months in lockdown, quarantine, social distancing, whatever you want to call it? 
Um, well, I am back in my home in Los Olivos, California. Yeah, I mean, holding up just fine. I think, uh, you know, I'm lucky to be here with my family. It was a little touch and go there because I was in the middle of racing Perry Nice when they started implementing travel bans and lockdowns and quarantines. And, you know, it was kind of a scary time because my family was on was on this side of the world while I was over there racing. So I was like, I was kind of panicked, like, oh man, am I going to get stuck over here and they're going to get stuck over there? What's going to happen? Luckily, we were able to to get together before, you know, basically the world shut down. But um, in the meantime, I've just been training, trying to trying to stay ready for, for when the racing and the world opens back up. Yeah. What have you been doing training wise to, to stay fit and to stay sane throughout this whole thing? I got to say it helped a lot when the UCI released a, a calendar until then I was just kind of riding. I, I had, I didn't really have a plan. I wasn't following a training schedule. I was just, I was just riding to kind of stay in shape and, to, and, to, you know, manage weight or whatever, but I didn't, I didn't really have an aim or a goal. It was basically just, you know, enjoy being outside. And, but yeah, once they, once they opened up or they, they released that calendar and they, I saw some of the race dates, it gave you kind of like a target to shoot for. So then it's like, all right, now let's, let's get structured about this and let's, uh, let's start actually training as if it means something. And were you able to ride outside the entire time or were you using some of the indoor platforms to stay fit as well? I mean, the color, the California rules, they, they said they permitted solo riding outside. So, so I wasn't doing any group rides, but I was still just riding solo outside, but I was still, uh, I got introduced to Zwift during this time. Just weird. I was doing rides with teammates and rides with, uh, you know, group rides that Cannondale or someone would put on. So I was, I got introduced to that, but, uh, luckily I was, I wasn't on full lockdown. Like some of my, my European colleagues were. Tell me, let's go back to, um, we're going to go to the start of, of, of your career. You've been racing for a really long, well, it feels like a really long time, you know, despite you being only what, like 31. I'm curious how you got, how you got going and like at what age you, you actually did start riding a bike. Yeah, I started bike racing. I think I entered like a, my first mountain bike race when I was like 10 years old. From there, I... I got on a road bike and started traveling to junior nationals, like road tripping across the country. You know, it was, it was a ton of fun back in those junior days. I was like, and once I started doing that, I just started kind of winning junior national championships. And it it sounds like a big deal. But when I look back at pictures, I was like 12 years old, like bright blonde hair with a bowl cut. I was just like this, this tiny skinny little kid, but I was like wearing a stars and stripes Jersey with my hands in the air, like pumping my fists, like I'm tiger woods or something. And from there, I just, I just kept at it. Just like I'd, I'd like mow lawns and, uh, and, you know, sweep floors to earn money to travel across the country to go compete at junior nationals every year. And I'd always just have success there and, you know, got on the junior national team. Um, from there, I got on Rabobank's uh, development program when I was 20, 21 years old. Uh, spent two years there. And then from there... I got my first pro contract for the 2010 season with HTC High Road. Spent my two Neo Pro years there before I moved on to BMC, which is where I spent the bulk of my career. You know, that was probably where I had the most success with, uh, you know, Tour de France placings and, you know, stage wins. And, you know, that's where the bulk of my Palmares came. Uh, obviously, that team folded and got onto EF. And that's where I am now. So at the beginning, when you said you were that skinny little kid with a bull haircut with your hands up in the air until now, like you've had to have some big influences on your cycling. Who have those riders or coaches or teammates been? Who, who are those, those people that influenced you so much throughout your career and, and have those names changed throughout? You know, uh, I actually kind of started thinking of a list. Um, it's funny you ask that question because... You know, obviously there's been a lot of people who have influenced throughout the career. I mean, you're one of them, Bobby, like we worked together on BMC and it was, uh, you know, you were living in Nice while I was there in Nice and you were able to come out and motor pace me. I mean, that was a big influence, but I, I started trying to think of like, who were the people most influential that had nothing to benefit from it other than just 
you know, the kindness of their heart. And because um, obviously, like, not every junior kid can afford a $10,000 bike and to travel across the country. And, you know, I was certainly not one of those kids who could afford that. So I was start, starting to think, like, who was instrumental in in the process of me getting to where I am today or where I've been? And one of, one of the names that sticks out is a local frame builder out of Bozeman, Montana, who he makes these custom frames. And, you know, when I was that skinny 12-year-old kid, I was growing like four or five inches every year, growing out of bikes. And he would build me a new bike every year, free of charge, just like build, built me a frame. And without him, like there's no way I could have afforded a bike. So yeah, his name is Carl Strong and strong racing frames out of Bozeman, Montana, custom frame builder. Without him, I, I wouldn't have been a bike racer. I just, I wouldn't been, wouldn't have been able to afford it. Yeah, there's a, there's a few other names like uh, those, those times on Rabobank that I was talking about. I have an aunt and uncle who opened up their doors for me and I was living with them in Holland for those two years. Without their support, I, and you know, for them to just, you know, feed me and, you know, like, like every meal, like I had a bed, I had, you know, they would give me rides to the airport, just, and, and like, they had nothing to gain from it. Um, they, they just said, okay, you want to come live in Holland and race bikes in Holland? Yeah, my, our doors are open for you. I mean, there's, I mean, the list goes on, but those are, those are definitely some big ones. I saw you posted like a photo a while back of, of, of you doing a time trial uh, when you were on that Rabobank development team. And I remember as a junior in, and then, under 23 I guess a little bit racing against that team and them being very dominant Rory Sutherland rode from them and then and then you rode for them there can't be too many other non-Dutch or like certainly non like mid-European guys that rode on that team like how did you end up how did you end up there what was that like being a part of that that program well, I think it helps that I have a Dutch last name so they I might have caught their eye a little bit. But yeah, I mentioned I, I raced for the U.S. national team the year before that, my first year in the uh, under-23 category. Did a few races, and I, I think Noel de Jonker, he made the connection there. I think they were looking for an American rider, but I think they were they maybe didn't want to take a chance on you know getting one of the ex-postal guys and putting them on their pro team, so they thought, okay, let's take a development guy and bring him along. It just turns out that I didn't end up signing with the pro team, but I think it was, uh, you know, it was certainly a a huge, huge learning experience. And I think it was probably the best uh, development I could have had as a young rider. That choice for you to go to that team, I, I automatically respected you for doing that because that was not the easy choice. You know, living in your, your aunt and uncle's house in Holland, racing on a Dutch team. What, what was the other option if you didn't go to Rabobank? Where, where else could you have gone at that stage in your career when you were so young? Yeah, I mean, I had I had had offers to to come race for some domestic teams, or there was, you know, at the time Jonathan Vodder's team was still, I, I think they still had a development program. You know, they they started out as an under twenty three team, and I think they were just kind of getting their feet wet into the into the pros. But even at that time, they still had a, a development program where they were racing in under twenty threes. But yeah, I mean, I I looked at it and I looked at the the list of riders who had come out of Rabobank. And it was like 70% of them had gone pro. If not like successful pros, they were, they at least got a shot somewhere. So I was thinking like, okay, what are, what are, what is my biggest chance to turn professional? Is it to go to one of these places and maybe make a little bit more money, spend more time in the U S you know, be able to stay at a, stay at a Hyatt and eat Olive Garden at racing Redlands, or am I going to go and race in these shit races in Belgium and actually learn how to race my bike and make no money, but it'll make me a good pro. And I was like, the choice was easy for me. Uh, like I said, total, total respect there. Road less traveled. That's for sure. TJ, I don't know if you remember this and I had to go deep into the vault to kind of remember this myself. So I'm not sure what year it was. But I met you for the first time, I believe it was at in 2007 at the World Championships. And you were there. We were roommates. I do remember that. Okay, right? <laughs> and I got there a little early. And for one night, we had to, one or two nights, we, we actually roomed together. And, um, you know, then I was at, towards the end of my career. And you obviously were right at the beginning of it. 
And I remember the first time that you really confirmed, you know, all your junior success was when, man, you were, I think you were a Neo pro and you got third in the Dauphiné. Was that 2010? That was 2010. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, on high road, obviously, you know, a big future ahead of you. And then you went on to finish fifth in the Tour de France in 2012. And you had, you won the best young riders jersey. And then you were able to, to equal that result again in 2014. 2015, you were going to be on the podium of the Tour de France until like three days to go, right? Like there's so much that goes on between 2010 when you kind of get out there and then you confirm that you're a top rider in the Tour de France. But along that time frame, what what special memories do you have of those years when you were so close to the pinnacle of the of the sport? Man, I mean, there's there's definitely a ton of fun memories of just like with teammates or or just kind of like rivalries or when I look back at them, I think, you know, they're fun or you know, hanging out with Taylor Finney and um you know, him being teammates with him, that was just a ton of fun. I remember a world championships we went to that year. Uh, he got a medal in the TT and I was just off the podium in fourth place. But man, we, it was in Volkenberg in 2012. I just remember having so much fun rooming with him there. Rooming with George Hincapie during that 2012 tour when I was in the white jersey. Like George, he just was such an even keeled guy. Like we went into the tour trying to defend the the title with Cadell Evans and I was new on the team and I was, you know, riding a little better and that was causing a little tension. But, you know, whenever I went back into the room with George, it was just, it was just pure fun. Um, and I think that definitely helped uh, calm the nerves for, for that first uh, success in the tour. Yeah. I mean, looking back on that, I, I just, sometimes I think uh, I took a lot of it for granted and I wish I would have kind of savored the moment a little bit more and appreciated it. Cause I always just thought, okay, I'm, I'm here now and I'm going to go there later and I'm here now. And that's a stepping stone to here. And that's, that's kind of the story of cycling in a nutshell. Like when you're a junior, you're not thinking about, Oh, I have so far to go to get to the tour, to get to the podium of the tour. You're thinking about the next step and like, how do I beat this guy? And now how do I beat this guy? And now how do I move up in this category? And then it's, and then it's the same. You get to the S bars, you're trying to move up categories and then you get into the pros and you're trying to establish yourself. And then you just keep thinking like, okay, now I'm shooting for the next thing. Now I'm shooting for the next thing. And you never stop to just say like, Hey, what I did was pretty cool. I wish I had done that a little bit more. Very well put. Very well put. I think, I think every professional kind of feels that same way is just stop and smell the roses every once in a while. The cycling is a bumpy road. Having said that, what are your strengths as a racer and what have you had to work on the most taking into account everything that you just said about always trying to, to get a little bit better? I mean, you're one of those guys that, that definitely works hard, but what do you feel has been your go-to strength and what have you had to work on the most in order to keep performing at this level? So I've always felt like I've been like my time trial is kind of my, my ace in the pocket. I mean, I'm not a pure, pure time trialer the way Rowan Dennis or Fabian Cancellara is, but as far as a, a GC rider goes, I'm usually one of the best GC time trialers. So I always feel like I can, I can move up some spots as if I make it to the TT and I can keep them close in the mountain. So climbing, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a decent climber, but I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a great climber. But over the years, I felt like because my time trial was good, I really, really, really need to focus on climbing, be it get your weight down or, you know, just do hill repeats or, or whatever. And I, and lately I've been thinking, I might've been thinking about it a little bit backwards because I, I almost think like, what if I doubled, tripled, quadrupled down on my strength rather than be so gung ho about working on my weakness that, you know, maybe that would end up paying, paying off more in spades. Cause I feel like the more I worked on my, on my climbing and the more weight I tried to lose and the more hills I tried to climb it, it kind of sacrificed a little bit of my TTing ability. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of taking a little bit different approach and spending a bit more time on the TT bike, focusing on the power and focusing on, um, 
you know, the getting comfortable in that position. And, you know, obviously you can't just neglect everything else, but I'm trying more to, to double down on my strength rather than try to work on, you know, you can't really make a weakness a strength. I think as long as it's not a liability, then I think you're fine and you have to just double down on what you're good at. And, you know, you were successful quite often over in Europe, but it seemed like every time you came back to America, you were just like on a totally different level. What, what do you attribute that, that to? Was that just being on home soil? What was that uh, that made you so much, you know, so, so dangerous to the, the competition in races like the Tour of California, Tour of Colorado? I mean, you have the Broncos hat on now. You just know, like, uh, you know, any sports team, they, when they have that home field advantage, that's going to be that's going to be huge. You know, when you have, uh, when you have the crowd behind you, when your family's watching, when, um, you know, when you can race on home soil, it gives you, it gives you a different feeling. I mean, you look at the Giro d'Italia, it's going to be Italians all at the top. You look at the tour of Spain, it's going to be Spanish guys all at the top. And I think it's no different when you have an American race, you're going to see Americans at the top. And what is your favorite race? I mean, the tour of Colorado was just pure fun. It was, it was just pure fun. I heard the after parties at Tour of Colorado were pretty good, weren't they? Yeah, that was a <laughs> <laughs> that that was that got a little out of hand. That was that was pretty legendary though. That was a that was a night you'll never forget. <laughs> so fast forwarding to your new team, your team team education EF Education First got off to one hell of a start before this pandemic kicked off. I mean, you guys were winning races left, right, and center. What do you feel contributed to that fast start? And do you think you guys are able to pick up where you left off with the winning that you guys were experiencing once the the races kick off again? I hope so. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, we had the new sponsor come in, EF, and, you know, they've gotten more and more involved and they've they've kind of they're not a typical sponsor that just like, here's here's the money and we're going to plaster our. our name and our brand on your Jersey. And we're basically paying for ad space. They, they took over the team and they, they wanted to get us involved in the company. You know, they had employees come out to watch bike races and, you know, vice versa. They had bike racers come do retreats with the company. So it really seemed like we were all sort of a part of a bigger thing and the mission that education first was trying to send. And we all really got behind it and we felt like, okay, we have, we have more of a purpose and a, and an identity. And, um, you know, they encourage people to, you know, be themselves and be, um, you know, not just, you kind of break the mold a little bit. And I think that got people really motivated and, uh, and you know, that's, that's not going to go away. So when the, when this pandemic is over, you know, that none of that changes. So I think we're going to be able to pick up right where we left off and, uh, and keep keep kicking some ass. So let's talk about now post COVID nineteen, right? You just said we said earlier on. Sorry, um, now that there's a calendar, you know, now that you have something to work towards, you, you're able to get going and get training and get and get hunting again. What are your goals once racing fires back up? So I'm I'm set to race the tour, which is a big enough carrot for me, and right. you know that's kind of the the singular goal that I have right now. But other than that you know, there's not very many races on the calendar for to split up amongst almost 30 riders. So, I mean, I hope I get to race more than just uh, the tour or maybe a lead up race to the tour and then the tour, but every rider on the team is going to have to race at least a couple of races. And there's just not a lot of roster spots for the amount of racing versus how many bodies there are on the team. Uh, definitely going to be tricky. But one thing I remember back in 2016, you actually didn't go to the Olympics out of concerns for the Zika virus, if if, if that's correct. Mm-hmm. And in order to make sure that I'm not saying anything out of line here, that was because your wife was pregnant or you had a young baby at home, something like that. Is that correct? Yeah, Jessica was pregnant at the time. So she was about six months pregnant, if I remember correctly, because daughter was born in September. And yeah, so the my my worry there was, you know, that 
if Jessica hadn't been pregnant, I would have gone to the Olympics. Uh, no question. I wouldn't have worried about, you know, getting a fever from, from Zika virus. The, the biggest scare with Zika virus is that can, it can harm the fetus. And, you know, if I have a pregnant wife at home, I'm like, I don't know what, I didn't know enough about the virus. And I, I was, I was hearing some, maybe some misinformation or maybe, you know, nobody really knows everything there is to know about a virus. So, um, so the fact that she was just pregnant at the time was just a, a risk that I wasn't willing to take. And, and understandably so, no doubt. But like you just said it, um, here we are again, um, dealing with something that you obviously were sensitive to. Are there, will you take any special precautions now? Or is this, you know, hey, leave it in the hand of the professionals, the team doctors, the, the UCI for setting up these protocols? Or is there any extra precautions that, that you're thinking of right now when you enter back into racing around the planet? I mean, yeah, again, like, I think we just have to trust the people in charge right now. And, you know, because I mean, there's so just so much we don't know that we have to put our trust in something. And, uh, you know, if they say, wearing a mask. And you, the thing is, you also have to just assess your risk tolerance. I think, I think just educating the public about, about what the risks are and, you know, then people can make their decisions on if they say, okay, look, if you're in a certain age demographic, or if you're a vulnerable person, you might need to wear a mask a little longer once things open up, or you might need to stay home a little longer once things start opening up. But I mean, look, we do that with every, everything in our lives, don't we? I mean, um, every time you get on a plane, you think like, okay, there's a risk involved here, but the risk is small enough that it's within my comfort zone. Or every time you step in a car, it's, you have to assess, like, you know, we, we say, what's my risk tolerance? You know, my risk tolerance is I'm going to drive the speed limit. And then that has to be good enough. You know, so once, once they once the people in charge tell us that it's safe to go out, I think they also need to educate people on what the risks are and, you know, what they can do to mitigate some of the risk and let people make the decisions on based on what they deem is an acceptable level of risk. So you just mentioned that you wanted to, you're focusing on the Tour de France this year. You've been arguably at the, you know, at the pointy end of the sport for like 10 years now, uh, nearly 10 years. What what what's left for you to accomplish, right? Like, what are you chasing now in terms of in terms of the the remainder of your career? Um, have your goals shifted at all from being like you know the the, the Tour de France or? Right now, I I just in, I I enjoy being a protagonist in a race, and you know before I think, like I said, I was always climbing those levels and trying to reach that next level, and I was hell bent on. It, it was almost to the point where I thought like, okay, I was fifth in the tour a couple of times. Now the podium has to be the goal. And if I don't get the podium, it's a failure. And I don't know if that was the right mindset. I think I should have just been like, I'm going to do the best I can because races are so much more fun when you can be a part of the race rather than basically like a spectator within the race. So I, I'm not putting a goal on it saying like, this is what I want to achieve. I just want to you know, enjoy the process, do the best I can and be a protagonist in a race in bike racing for as long as I can be. And then once I can't be anymore, then I'll know that that's when I'll know it's maybe time to stop. And being in the pro peloton since 2010, you've raced through some, how should I put this, some very special times, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of changes, you know, within the sport you know, with yourself, changing teams, you know, kids, everything. But what would you like to see change in the sport of cycling or perhaps done differently before you retire? Man, I mean, I look at some of these other sports and how they have, you know, players unions or like collective bargaining agreements. And, you know, the it just seems like the players or the writers or the, the actors in the play kind of just really have a voice with the decisions that, that get made. And with cycling, it feels like we, you know, we don't really have a, a strong voice in that regard. And you saw that kind of come up with in Perry Nice earlier this year, it was like a huge question mark as to whether it was ethically or morally right for us to be out there racing. And there 
the whole world was in the midst of a shutdown and all of these other sports like, you know, the March Madness had just said that they're shutting down, yet we're still racing across France. I'm not sure what the riders would have said in that regard, but it's not like we were ever even asked. Um, and it, it would have just been curious to know, like, look, are you guys, are you guys comfortable being out here right now? Um, it would have been nice to just have a seat at the table to be able to say yes or no. Interesting. So you guys were not at all um, communicated with with that decision of Perinice. It was just kind of a, an assumption that you guys were going to get going because we started hearing things once you guys started that it was like as soon as you get down to the south of France, you know, the race is going to stop. And it did wind up, you know, you know, sh- being shortened by one stage. Yeah, so- I think uh, I think probably halfway through the race, it there was like some some poll that was given out to say like, do you guys, I don't know, what are you guys thinking at this moment? But I mean, I don't know at the time, I mean, there was certainly nothing before the start of the race and there was, um, I don't know, very, I I feel like the decision at that point was already more or less made out of our hands. So that's insane. That strikes me as uh, ridiculous. I assume that like at least somebody's like, was consulted, but evidently not. Look, I've got a couple. We've got a couple last questions for you. And one I have, I was I was recently reading a recount um, that Alan Lim wrote um, about when, uh, like, back in two thousand eight, Tour Cali in two thousand eight, and he quoted you after you had just won that time trial, and he said, uh, he, he, "The quote is, which which as you said is all I need to be my best is love." And um, and Al said that 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 statement was the statement that got him across the line to kind of engage with you as a coach. Um, and, and we all know Al Lim's kind of idiosyncrasies around who he works with and how he works with them. And, but what, and, and so that was, that was fascinating, first of all. But then the thing that I really thought was fascinating about that, um, that quote and that story was that love isn't really synonymous with winning in a sport like cycling, any sport really nowadays for that matter, right? I'm intrigued to... Like, I'm intrigued to, to know, like, what did you mean by that statement? And how does, like, I guess, how does that sort of drive you to chase winning? Well, there's there's more of a backstory that went into that. So that time trial that you're referring to, um, my I, I had been away in Girona and my wife and kids had come back to the U.S. And I, I raced Romandy. And then after Romandy, I went and did a recon camp in the Pyrenees with uh, Richie Port and a couple other riders. And straight from there, went to the race in California. And I hadn't seen my, my wife and my two kids for, you know, it was, it was almost going on six weeks. And I, my plan was to just go back to Colorado and see them after the tour of California. But they had surprised me by coming out to that stage. So I had done the recon, done the warm-up, done... Uh, done everything. And I was sitting in the, in the starting tent and it, this was like a minute and a half before my event was about to, to start. And, you know, like sometimes you start getting that tunnel vision and, and you start like replaying that whatever metal song in your head to kind of start getting like angry and pumped up and game face. And then I just hear my daughter in the corner, just say, Hey, dada, dada. And I recognized her voice straight away. And and I, they, I was like so shocked to see him because I had no idea that they were going to be there. And it had been like six weeks since I'd seen him. So I go over there. I give her a big hug. She's like got tears in her eyes. I give my wife a kiss. And um, and then I just realized like, oh, man, now, now I got like 20 seconds for until I start. So I better get going. And like, it's like my heart just melted. And I'm like, I'm just thinking like, wow, it made me so happy to see him. I get into the start gate and I'm like kind of frazzled. I, I, it just kind of took me out of that element or that element of focus. And I was just like, okay, I like five, four, three, two, one, go. And I go and I look down at my power meter and I'm like, wow, I'm going way too hard right now. Like, I don't know if I can keep this up. I keep trying to pull myself back thinking like, if I keep this up, I'm going to blow because I got too much adrenaline right now. And then I kept looking down and I'm like, it's not going down. I I keep this power is still staying up. And then like halfway through, I'm just like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to roll with it. Like maybe I'm just on a day. And, 
and you know, like I, I crossed the line and, you know, I, obviously I finished completely empty and, but I was like, wow, that was, uh, almost some numbers I didn't know I could do. And I feel like I, I kind of channeled into something that I hadn't channeled into before. And the only thing I could attribute it to was, yeah, the, uh, seeing my wife and kids and, and, you know, it took me out of that anger feeling and had gave me more of a feeling of love. So Man, we had That's asked a, you about your your best uh, cycling memory, and I think you just nailed it. That that's definitely it's definitely up there. Yeah, that that has to be number one. Yeah, that is a brilliant story, mate. I've got one final question for you. Um, it's well known uh, that you're a basketball fan, the Jordan Doc. Give me your thoughts. Oh man, I'm, <laughs> this this quarantine just got so much worse now that that doc ended because I was, I was so excited every Sunday that the two episodes would come out and man, like I think he just cemented it. He is the goat greatest of all time. No debate, no question. And that doc was awesome. Yeah. It was unbelievable. (laughs) You're good buddies with Reggie Miller, right? And he yeah. was, and he played a pretty big part in a couple of those documentaries. T- tell us a little bit about Reggie Miller and how you met him. And I heard he's into bikes, uh, does a lot of mountain biking. Yeah, he's a big time bike rider. He's mainly a mountain biker, but he, he rides on the road a lot, but he does a lot of mountain bike competitions. So it's, it was a funny story. I watched Reggie Miller's 30 for 30 and I thought it was so great that I just am like, ah, oh, I want to look him up on Instagram and... I looked him up on Instagram and I saw all these pictures of him on bikes and, you know, riding bikes or racing bikes. And I was like, holy shit, like this guy, this guy's a, this guy's a cyclist. Maybe I can get in touch with him. And I was like, ah, maybe I'll call my agent, see if they can get in touch with his his agent. But I like, that didn't work. So I, I looked at his Strava page and I looked at his most recent ride and I saw, okay, he doesn't have too many Strava followers. Maybe if I send him a message, he might get it. So I just send him a message on Strava saying like, hey, I'm, I'm TJ Van Garderen. I don't know if you know who I am, but uh, I raced for um, BMC at the time and I'd love to go on a ride with you. Here's my email address. I just give him my email on Strava. <laughs> and I get an email from him like 20 minutes later saying like, hey, that would be a huge honor. I'd, I'd love to ride with you. And I'm like, well, hey, I got a plan. I got a trip planned to Malibu around this time. If you're around, then let's make it happen. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. So we, we go on a ride. It was like this four hour ride in the Hills above, above Malibu. And, you know, we just talked about everything. I talked about, you know, his, we, he asked me questions about training. I asked him questions about basketball. Um, I asked him about his documentary, about his fights with Jordan. And, uh, you know, it was like, it was one of the best four hours of my life. And yeah, I've kept, kept in pretty good touch with him. Um, every now and then I'll see him at an event or, you know, he came out and rode this uh, Figueroa Grand Fondo that's just out my back door. But yeah, he's a super cool guy. You know, he has his own like jersey line called the Boom Baby jerseys that he sells to, to support his foundation called Dropping Dimes. Yeah, just a great guy. Big cyclist. Oh man, he's in for it now that he knows that you were successful with uh, some Strava stocking. He better uh, make his account private because we want to have him on his podcast, so we know how to get a hold of him now. So we're gonna, <laughs> Gus. Can you take care of that? Just yeah, you know, ping, ping, ping him on Strava, and uh, <laughs> since since he's so good at returning uh, that sort of stuff, I'll man, send t- a message. I'll tell him. I'll tell him. I'll tell him to to hit you guys back. For sure. That would be awesome. <laughs> that would be awesome. But I don't think we'd talk much cycling. We'd talk about his doc and the the Jordan 30 for 30. That's for sure. But man, TJ, awesome. Thank you so much for your time to speak with us, Knuckleheads. Um, before we stop, is there anything that we didn't cover that you would like um, us to ask you or that you would like to communicate to to our listeners? Um, I don't know. I just want to tell everyone to stay safe and stay positive. And, you know, like, you know, I think, I think, you know, cycling right now, it's, it doesn't seem too important in the, in the grand scheme of what's going on in the world. But I think, you know, I just, I just want to get back out and race again to give people a distraction and something to cheer for. And, um, you know, assuming that it's safe and if it is safe, then I, I just hope that we can, uh, that we can get back out there 
and, you know, just give a little positivity into people's lives. Um, cause I think a lot of people need it right now. Right on, man. Yeah. I think you're, you're right. That the MJ Docker test that, right? Sport is, is greater than just the result and the outcome. And, and there is certainly a role for sport cycling very much at the heart of that, uh, in, in a pandemic in this current situation. So, uh, appreciate you saying that. Well, it was great to see you guys. Thanks for having me on and let's do it again sometime. Yeah, all the best, TJ. Thanks, guys. See you. It was a really interesting discussion with uh, TJ there. Some some uh, interesting stuff about when you guys shared a room from early on uh, in his career. Tell me, what, what what did you take away from from uh, our chat with TJ and, and where he's at at the moment? You know, first off... First things first, it's hard to believe that he's only right. 31 because it seems like he's been around for a very, very long time. And, you know, getting on the podium in 2010 as a neo pro in the Dauphiné and then almost getting on the podium in, in the Tour de France and, you know, just always there, but then seems to have some sickness or some issue pop up in the race where you know, maybe his consistency is is called into question. But he definitely is an amazing bike racer. And he's definitely raced at a very special moment in cycling. You know, he's he's been on some great teams. There's obviously been a lot of change in the sport. But I just like the way that he's he's kept his head on his shoulders. I mean, he's definitely, you got to feel for the guy. I mean, coming up when he came up, and having success in the tour, um, there must have been a lot of pressure there. And what he mentioned about, hey, I was fifth this year, I'm going to be mm. fourth next year or third, and anything else is, is, is a failure. I understand what he was saying there. And, you know, it, it's a very difficult thing. It's not like uh, a vending machine where you put in a couple coins and push a couple buttons and, you know, whatever you pick comes out. There's a lot of variables that go into cycling. So, found it very interesting to see where where you know where he came from how he started that always intrigues me you know having that same asking Chloe that same question last week um always quite fun but yeah I don't think we've seen the last of TJ yet uh he's maturing very very fast um he definitely is at that kind of twilight of his career I don't think he's close to the end of it but the the experience that he's learned is you know potentially going to be a big um benefit to him moving forward and you know just with coming out of this pandemic there's going to be guys that are maybe more motivated than others and it sounds like with him staying down there in California uh safe with his family that he's been able to train quite well i mean our viewers our, our listeners can't can't see him, but we saw him on Zoom. He uh, he looks yeah, very, he definitely very fit, does, and, and I would have to agree with um, with what you said. I don't think we've seen the last nor the best of TJ Van Garderen, right? Um, you know, uh, as we as you alluded to earlier on, right? He's had trouble being consistent, but he's been at the top of the sport for a long time, and we all know that you know if you just keep trying, eventually the stars align, and I feel like those stars have got to align for him um, soon enough. The thing that I took away um, from from his conversation was the very last thing he said before we wrapped up, and that was that um, it's important that sport kicks off again, and that it, you know cycling gives people uh, hope. It, you know, sport gives people hope. Cycling gives people hope. These um, these events that that uh, people aspire to and look to that haven't been going on. Um, do have a really critical place in society, and I thought that was really interesting because there's been a lot of rhetoric. Um, right from the get-go um, from athletes, from team managers, from sponsors, and, and it's been around, oh, look, it's just cycling. It's only cycling. Like in the grand scheme of things, it's not that important. But, you know, as this as this lockdown, as this pandemic, as this time of uncertainty has, has dragged on and on and on, we're realizing that some of the biggest impacts of this situation are on people's mental health are on you know people kind of orienting themselves in this in in this time where where an absence of normality is leaving people really like at loose ends and sport is something that's been a constant for a lot of people and and it does give us a distraction and and whilst that does seem trivial like it's not 
Um, and so it was nice to hear an athlete kind of sort of stand up and be like, yeah, this is important and it is important and obviously safety is important and all these things um, that follow that are uh, obviously very important but it doesn't mean that there isn't a way that we can't figure out a way to have this sport resume um, in some fashion and give and give people that hope. So, yeah, I found that a really interesting insight into into his character and, and I think, to be honest, like quite a, a well thought through and, and quite a mature um, statement. Very much so, very much so. And I, I think this is one of those interviewees that we would like to, to go back on and have on the show again because one of the things that I find interesting which we never we didn't really get to on this podcast is you know from 2010 mm-hmm. until now he's dealt with some pretty special circumstances right but i'm curious you know now that the the sport of cycling mm-hmm. is much much cleaner you know what are those challenges what what are those guys talking around the dinner table or what what are they researching on the internet you know, of, of issues that they have to deal with. And, and you mentioned one of them, uh, mental health. And TJ kind of touched on it a little bit. I thought he was going to go a little bit deeper, um, talking about uh, weight and, you know, how it is so important for watts per kilo when you're going uphill. I'd be really curious to hear what those riders are, are having to deal with in, in the pro peloton. I mean, not only coming out of the pandemic, but um, perhaps the, the mental mindset and um, mental health, as well as you know, this weight issue, this this pressure to be skinny to go uphill, and at at what cost, you know. And TJ said it kind of affected his time trialing a little bit. And so once this does kick off and and they do get into a rhythm, it'd be really interesting to check back. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you touched on a really interesting subject there, and I think that uh, that yeah, there's a lot of a lot of athletes at the top level as well as just general you know, population that involved in this sport that kind of uh, are caught up in all that sort of stuff. So it would be really uh, interesting to hear from one of the guys at the top. And um, we will. We're going to try and check back in once this season kicks back off again, a few few of the uh, athletes we've had on the podcast. So stay tuned for that. And that's it, everyone. That's all we have time for this week. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And thanks again to TJ Van Garderen from EF Education First Cycling Team. You can find our podcasts as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at velonews.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever your favorite go-to podcast site may be. Just search for Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O. Please continue to show your support by subscribing and spread the word by telling your you friends about us. You can get at us on social media, Fizzopod. On Twitter, P-Y-S-O-P-O-D, uh, at that is Gus or at Bobby.Julik on Instagram. Yeah, reach out to us there. We'll respond. Any suggestions, feedback, uh, whatever else you feel like uh, talking about. Until next week, thank you very much for listening. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe, stay sane, and don't forget to put your socks on. Nice. Good discussion. Good discussion. Good discussion.